Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Breaking the Game podcast. I am Stephen Gillespie, and joining me as he has been very lately as the new co-host, Mr. Austin Carr. Austin, how you doing, brother? I'm good, man. It's a good day today. You know, we got some basketball games on tonight, some good games yesterday. It's been an exciting first round. How you doing? I am alive and well. I was a little sad that yesterday we only had two games. I was so used right. to getting ramped up and watching basketball from like, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning until I go to bed at night. So mm-hmm. it was pretty fun. But, you know, now we're back to a little bit more of a reality check, more of what we're used right. to seeing. Well, it's definitely been fun though while it lasted for sure. Yeah. And the good news is, is that we still have some basketball games that we get to cover. But before right. we get to those, Austin, there has been some NBA news that we're going to be discussing before the playoffs. Yes, there has. We've had quite a few uh, coaching coaching openings come you know you know coaching spots come available if you want to call it lots of coaches getting fired losing their job um some were kind of expected some not so expected um i think a lot of people the first one we're going to talk about is uh brett brown you know he was fired from philadelphia after seven years um you know we talked about that a little bit on our last show and i think a lot of people saw that coming you know um Philadelphia's kind of underachieved for a while now. They were, you know, a shot away last year from the Eastern Conference Finals, a crazy Kawhi Leonard, you know, prayer. But, you know, this year they definitely underperformed. They weren't where up to the expectations of, of fans or really anybody that, you know, saw this roster put together. Um, you know, you and I kind of both were a little bit skeptical about, um, you know, the construction of this roster from the get-go when they signed Horford. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's just, it was weird on paper, right? You you lose some floor spacing earlier on when you got Jimmy Butler for last year, right? When you traded away Saric and, you know, you added Jimmy Butler, you had J.J. Redick. Um, there were a lot of good plays where you saw J.J. Redick come off some handoff to style plays from Embiid and Butler and, you know, space the floor and that seemed to work very well, but... You know, Jimmy Butler, for whatever reason, there's a lot of speculation why he wasn't happy there. So instead of just letting him leave outright, they traded him to Miami in order to get Jason or, you know, Josh Richardson. Excuse me, not Jason. Jason's mm-hmm. from a different era. But, you know, <laughs> Josh Richardson coming over to Philadelphia. And there was an idea that he could do a little bit more on-ball creation. You know, Miami let him do that a little bit on their team, but he wasn't necessarily a true point guard. They signed Tobias Harris to that ridiculous contract that everybody thought, you know, that's what you sign, you know, a top level talent to that amount of money. Mm-hmm. And Tobias Harris is a nice player, but he's not a a star. And then, you know, bringing in Al Horford as kind of like insurance policy for if Embiid gets hurt or, you know, they could just play super tall with those two guys together. You know, they, they drafted well, you know, added a Matisse Thibel, um trade. Traded up to get him. I thought that that was a great deal. Um, and he's looked very good this year for them. But overall, and, and they did well with their trading some second-round draft picks to bring in, you know, um, Glenn Robinson the third and um, Alex Burks, who's had a couple of nice games. But overall, the, when you have a starting lineup that has Embiid and you surround him with probably like three power forwards and Simmons, Harris, and Horford, um, Horford maybe even considered a center, it, it just looked, you know, too jumped up on paper for mm-hmm. that offense to do anything. 
Right. Um, you know, they got rid of all the all the shooters that they had yep. the last couple of years. Then exactly what you said. Every they've got four guys that all want to play near the rim. That all are kind of you know jumbled in there together in a league where floor spacing and small ball is becoming you know the name of the game. They went super big with a bunch of guys that really can't create their own shot from the outside that aren't going to be terrific perimeter shooters. Um, Embiid and, and Horford don't match up well together at all. And something I saw today that just blew me away, those four contracts, just those four guys, Embiid, Simmons, Harris, and Horford, they're going to be paying them $130 million in the 2022-2023 season. So they're, it's going to be a while before they can kind of get out from under some of these moves unless they can, you know, add a lot of picks or some sweeteners to try to get rid of one of those guys. Um, I don't think it's going to be a beater Simmons for sure. Um, new coach that could come in. I mean, it's obviously a, you know, an attractive job when you've got stars like that, but, um, True. you know, you've got to be able to figure out a way to, uh, to utilize Embiid and Simmons a little bit better together. Um, I don't know if it's more pick and roll or not. I don't know if that's the answer. Um, I know they don't run hardly any pick and rolls compared to you know a lot of right. teams in the NBA. They were like second let to last. Uh, that would be probably something I would look for um, in, in the next coach. Maybe somebody that can get through to, to Ben Simmons and try to consider you know working on that three pointer a little bit more, or just get him to be not scared to shoot it in the games. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hearing a lot of speculation about Ty Lue. Uh, yeah, me too. I don't too. know if that's a good idea. I don't think so because, you know, when you consider Ty Lue and what he's done in his short coaching career, mm-hmm. he was basically – he's a former player, right, which a lot of players respect. You know, they want a guy who, you know, whenever they're telling them something, the players know that the coach telling them what to do has gone through the same experiences. You know, maybe on a smaller level, maybe they weren't star-level talent, but, you know, they've been around the game and they're well-respected. And, you know, Ty Lue certainly brings that, but – when I look at his creativity and you know his um, lineup configurations and things like that, he doesn't scream to me to be the best guy for Philadelphia. You know, mm-hmm. I I think that Brooklyn should highly consider them or consider him if they don't keep Jacques Vaughn. Um, I think that Lou, you know, obviously he coached Kyrie Irving once upon a time in Cleveland, and you know he still left Ty Lue, so I don't. I mean, it's largely speculated that it was because of LeBron James and not Ty right. Lue. You know, there was nothing that Lue could have done to make him happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you're basically bringing Lue in to be an ego manager. And I don't think that Philly necessarily needs ego managed, maybe slightly. Because like you said, Austin, you know, alluding to Simmons' reluctancy to shoot threes or, you know, for whatever reason, we'll talk about this later, but in the whole Embiid, you know, is he trying, is he not trying? Mm-hmm. Um controversy things like that and i don't see lou being that type of guy i think jay wright from villanova would be an outstanding fit here just be his his philosophy in college i think would translate very well to the pros you know he empowers players you know he Mm -hmm. and he he gives like a team first mentality i think that a lot of coaches say that but when you look at the success that villanova has had over the past several seasons you know, he, he has that. He has players that he's coached in college in the pros, and we've seen mm-hmm. that carry over to success for guys like Billy Donovan and Brad Stevens. You know, Fred Hoiberg didn't have that whenever he kind of bottomed out in Chicago. John Bayline didn't really have that, and plus he's 
you know, old enough to be some of these players' grandfathers. So that mm -hmm. generational divide doesn't really help in that aspect when you don't have established NBA success. So I think Jay Wright would be a, a great selection for an NBA head coach. Obviously, mm -hmm. they would have to pay him well enough to consider sacrificing, you know, the – you know the reputation that he has on his name austin yeah you know i think i think so too i think he's probably at the top of a lot of sixers fans lists too he's you know he's from that area mm -hmm. um he's obviously shown the ability to develop players they don't get you know the top recruiting classes every year and they're always you know really really good by the time the playoff you know the ncaa tournament comes around um i think that is one thing that you can look at that brett brown didn't really have a great track record with in his time in Philadelphia is guys either leaving and suddenly blossoming and getting better or guys who were, you know, big time, um, you know, big time players on other teams like Horford and Tobias Harris have come in and, you know, they seem like they've regressed under Brett Brown. Um, I don't know if that's so much his coaching or just or bad fit. I think it has a little bit to do with both. Um, but uh, I think Jay Wright would be a great pick. You know, that's kind of who I was thinking about too. Um, really, I'm not. I'm not too sold on any of the guys that I've been hearing that they're going to talk to. I really hope they don't um, go after their own assistant coach. I think the whole idea of, of getting rid of Brett, Brett Brown is you need to get a new voice in the locker room and a, mm -hmm. a, and try something different. And I don't know that bringing in one of his assistants and promoting him is the way to go. Yeah, Udoka um, is the guy that they're considering there. And if I was Udoka, I would get the heck out because right now he's in a lot of, you know, um, circles as far as, you know, teams considering him. He's been a part of the Spurs system before this. Brett Brown obviously was a part of the Spurs system too. So um, I'm not saying Udoka is at large to blame, but he certainly has his hands at least a little bit dirty. So I would not try to just die on my sword in Philadelphia if I was Udoka either. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Um, you know, I I know you wrote actually a, a a piece for the network about the coaching matchmaker thing, and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so you've definitely got some more you can add to it, that's for sure. Yeah, I definitely have to. And that's a great transition into, you know, um, Indiana. This right. was not a place where I thought that there was going to be a coaching vacancy just because McMillan, to me, is is a good NBA head coach. Sure, he's not like your your 1A type head coaches or anything like that, but mm -hmm. to me, he's kind of like a transitional coach, like a, a team that doesn't have high expectations or a young team. You know, we saw him do it in Portland um, before Indiana, and, you know, he established a lot of younger guys and got them to play well together, and, you know, a little bit of the same thing in Indiana with some of their young players. Um, I just – it was really shocking to me, though, Austin, to see that he – ended up getting dismissed so quickly after getting that extension. But I know you have some insight as to what that extension was really about. Yeah, so I was in the same boat as you. I had, had assumed that, that that extension that he got, um, you know, earlier this year was, you know, a legitimate extension for beyond the rest of this season. So it turns out that the players' contracts were extended due to collective bargaining with the four-month shutdown of coronavirus. They had to actually, you know, obviously extend the, the end date of all the, you know, the legal whatever mumbo-jumbo in their contracts. And uh, the, um, the coaches' contracts are not collectively bargained. So his contract was actually scheduled to um, run out 
in July of this year. Mm-hmm. So for them to be able to even have him as their coach in the bubble, they had to give him, I guess, what they're calling on the internet now is a soft extension. I've never heard that term before today, but uh, you know, it kind of does make sense. It was a um, they just reworked the final year of his contract to extend it out, and then gave themselves, I guess, a team option is what they were saying it was for next year that they obviously decided not to uh, exercise. Um, I'm with you. I was pretty pretty surprised. I didn't think they would. Um, I know a lot of fans around here are happy about it. I, I don't really know what they expected from this team, though. Um, I mean, with the amount of injuries they had, with Oladipo being back but really not still being himself, um, you know, I know TJ Warren was great and he had a good year and he is a really good player, but they basically got him for a bag of potato chips. You know, in the <laughs> right. offseason, they they obviously they weren't expecting him to come in and be their best player. And um, with Sabonis being out, Lamb, I think this team overachieved. I think they overachieved almost every year that he's been that McMillan's been their coach. Um, he does have a bad playoff record, but he, he was mm-hmm. got the third most wins in Pacers history behind Larry Brown and Frank Vogel. Um, I, I like I said, I just. I don't know what they what more they expected from this team, and I'm not really sure who their who their targets are going to be as far as head coaches. I I don't know that they're a, a super attractive job because they don't have a ton of cap space, and they've got a lot of guys that are kind of the same. They don't really have a legitimate point guard. They they've got a lot of good pieces, but how much better can they really get? You know. Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. And if you look at his record, you said that he was third most all times in in franchise history as far as victories goes. Slightly under 500 at 183 um, wins and 186 losses. You know, three and 16 in the playoffs is nothing to write home about. But you look at his overall coaching record; he's 661 wins to 558 losses, but you know, still 17 and 36 in the playoffs. He's always kind of been on underdog teams so to speak, uh, you know, looking back at Portland and even in Seattle for a little while, uh, you know, he's, I still think that he's a good NBA coach. I still think that, you know, with him being dismissed, I could foresee teams like Atlanta, possibly even Orlando looking at, at, at a guy like Nate McMillan being like, yeah, he's not going to get us an NBA championship, but we don't have the roster right now to contend anyway. Let's go and sign him to, you know, a two, three year contract, help him develop our young guys, help him to teach them, you know, some defensive fundamentals because McMillan teams are very smart. They don't really commit a lot of turnovers. They don't foul a lot. They're very effective around the basket. They're not necessarily a traditional roster, so to speak, as far as three-point attempts, but I felt like we saw a little bit better uh, improvement in that area. In the Pacers' last game, they still lost, but, you know, they they took well above their, you know, season average for three-point attempts, so he's showing that he's capable and and willing to experiment with having a more contemporary system i just i don't know who could come in to uh to to indiana um and and replace them i think you know jacques vaughn is a guy that i think could come in and 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 give a little bit of a push maybe even a sam cassell who has some history with the organization as well and you know he's been a little bit more selective in just accepting any job i think you know indiana is a place where you do have capable talent you do have a little bit of assets, and some of these guys have really good trade value if you're interested in shaking things up. So, you know, with Indiana saying that they want to search for an NBA head coach immediately, 
I think that they probably already had a list coming into this decision. Mm-hmm. It seemed like it was kind of the writing on the wall the whole time now that we've seen everything play out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just I think that McMillan deserves another opportunity. I could even see there's a world that I could see him even going and being like a head assistant head coach or an associate head coach somewhere like mm-hmm. New York under um, Tom Thibodeau, I think would be a great fit if he's interested in taking a little bit of step back to get another opportunity after next season, Austin. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I like what you said about I think he'd be a great uh, transitional coach kind of for a young team. You know, mm-hmm. like you said earlier today, get him to respectability, um, teach him the fundamentals. Uh, as far as the new the new head coach, both of those guys you said were kind of who I was thinking about. Um, I think you'll see it'll be a first-time head coach or like, you know, Jacques Vaughn obviously coached a little bit this year, but, you know, he's an interim if, you, if that makes right. a difference. But now, I don't think you're going to see – somebody like a Jason Kidd or, or a, a big name established head coach end up there. Um, you know, you never know though. The Pacers have had some, some high profile coaches in the past, you know, Larry, Bird. Larry Brown, Larry Bird, you know, <laughs> a couple Larry's um, Rick Carlisle was there, you know, they've had a lot of good coaches and um, so it remains to be seen which direction they go in. But I, I think I would like Sam Cassell. Um, I know yep. a lot of fans would love it if Larry Bird came out of retirement, but that'd be a far-fetched. <laughs> nah, he's, uh, he's happy what he's doing. Oh, I'm sure he is. <laughs> um, I don't really have a whole lot else on this, if you want to move on. Yeah, just the last little bit of news before we get into our playoff analysis is your your guy won Defensive Player of the Year, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yes, he did. He's not MVP yet, but he's my favorite. I know he's your favorite. He's a lot of people's favorite, unless you're just – you know, super high on what LeBron is doing and, mm-hmm. you know, his 17th year in the NBA, which has been incredible. But there's a very good likelihood that Giannis could join a short list of players to win most valuable player and defensive player of the year all within the same season, Austin. Right. And, you know, I think he did benefit a little bit from having a really good defensive unit around him, like you said. Um, you know, Lopez twins are both really good defensive players. Eric Bledsoe, you know, is probably going to be on – you know, a lot of people's first or second team all defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got some other good guys. You know, Giannis, I just think this year is his year, you know, to take home all the awards. You know, you kind of get like that, the feel that, you know, he's the, his time is right now. Whether whether or not that means they win a championship, I don't know. Um, statistically, he did have, you know, an incredible season on both sides of the ball. He had the best defensive rating in basketball, which, you know, I think defense – is a little bit more of the eye test than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anybody would have been mad if Anthony Davis or Gobert won it. You know, they're obviously both, you know, extremely talented defenders. I just think Giannis has kind of been trending this way for a while now. His defense has kind of gotten better and better year in and year out, just like all of his game has. And I just also think it's kind of the sexy pick, too. I, I think, you know, if we're ever going to have another guy that's going to win both in the same year, now's the time to do it. So, Yeah, I'm, I, Gobert, you know, you know, and, you know, listeners and, and viewers know that Gobert was my pick. But, I mean, I don't have anything negative to say about Giannis's defense. Now, AD was a guy that was largely in contention for this award, but there are some advanced statistics that show – and this is only part of the discussion, but that the Lakers' defense actually played better without him on the floor. Now, I know that there's a lot that goes into that as far as lineups and who they're playing and things like that. I'm certainly not saying that the Lakers should not play Anthony Davis. That's not what I'm advocating for at all. 
But when you have a three-headed race and it's tight, things like that matter when you take you know everything into consideration. Giannis does does not have any such statistic. I mean, the Bucks have one of the best defenses within the last five years, maybe even further than that. And Gobert does doesn't have any such statistic either. So when it's as close as it is, you know, those little almost insignificant things suddenly become significant. And Davis, I think, was third on my list. I don't know if he was third on yours. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that seems to be kind of the the running, um, you know, gesture is that he's the third best defender in a really really good competitive race for defensive player of the year this year. Right. It was definitely, uh, I think, probably going to be the tightest of all the um, of all the races. Maybe six man. Six man will probably be pretty. Yeah, pretty six close man is up well. there. Um, but I think the other ones were at least MVP and um, rookie of the year. I think are pretty well pretty well figured out for most people um i saw whether or not i believe it or not i saw supposedly a leaked um ballot for the mvp voting today and all but two people had Giannis on it so we'll see (laughs) we'll see how that goes um but yeah you know congratulations to him i think that it was well deserved for sure yeah absolutely and i think right now you know we have a split between the major award winners where you know coach of the year went to my guy nick nurse and now defensive player of the year went to your guy Giannis. so i think that you know between the two of us we may have a little bit of an idea of what's going on in the nba yeah i hope so i would like (laughs) to think so i would as well and we can take that and transition to the first playoff series that we get to analyze here in this playoff analysis podcast we have probably one of the most chippy edgy fun entertaining series to lead off with between the clippers and the mavericks austin we've had two games since our last recording as of sunday today is wednesday the 26th for anyone who's watching or listening later uh you know we had the overtime victory um which was the score of 133 for the clippers to the mavericks 135 and then last night we saw an absolute shellacking of the Dallas Mavericks 154 to 111. Austin, we're going to we're going to analyze these games kind of how we were in our fields between both of these games and I just think that they were just polar opposites of each other. Yeah, you, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh game 4 was uh, you know, back and forth. The Clippers got up by 21 points and, you know, no Porzingis in either of those games and Luka Doncic just you know, showed everybody why so many people think he's the future of the NBA. Jeez, dude. You know, the first ever 40-point triple-double in playoff history. Uh, you know, a step-back three to win the game at the buzzer it was just incredible. I was actually out to dinner with my family and uh, almost jumped up from the table and scared my daughter. It was pretty funny. I think I've seen so many of those stories where they saw what Luca did and everyone mm-hmm. was like, I celebrated and scared my family almost. So Right. Um, and it's and it's not like you know the Clippers didn't play a good game. Um, I'm not sure what they were doing defensively down the stretch. How you know Reggie Jackson gets switched onto him so many times down the stretch there when you've got Kawhi and Paul George out there uh, that you know was a little head scratching. Um, but obviously they came back in Game Five and uh, cleaned up some of those miscues and then some. Uh, Paul George seems like he figured out who Paul George was again. Yeah, I'm back almost, right? Right. He was in witness protection before last night. Boy, was he. Yeah, it was a completely <laughs> different story from one game to the next. You know, Clippers won by 40-plus points, and, I mean, I think they put 40 on him in the first quarter just about. And uh, 
I actually uh, turned it out off and went to bed at that point. I could, you could just kind of see the, the writing on the wall. Um, so if you watched more of it than I did, I'll kind of let you. Oh, I, game I watched about the first half. Unfortunately, I had to go to work. Um, right. I did go, go up during the fourth quarter. It was like 121 to 93 with 10 minutes left in the fourth mm-hmm. quarter. So to see the final score after that. I mean, obviously, offense was more a little bit more at a premium after you know the the stars came out. You know, Kawhi was already sitting when I tuned back in for the brief moment before I had to go back into class, and it was the first half. You could just tell, like you mentioned, you know, the first half you could just tell that the Mavericks were, you know, they they were missing their second best player, um, Luca, obviously doing everything that he can to keep their heads above water. You know, Luca Legend basically is what I'm referring to him now. From now on, excuse any Larry Bird fans out there. I don't think that it's an insult to to Larry Bird at all. I just think that you now have an heir apparent to the to the alliteration of you know LNL Luca Legend Larry Legend. So I just think that you know that go ahead three. You could almost feel like it was coming. It mm-hmm. felt like it was one of it, the stage was set for Luca to basically continue to build the case that he is going to be the best player in the NBA someday. You know, I can speak a little bit as to why that switch happened, and and you could counter-argue me all you want, and that's fine. But I just think that Rick Carlisle, he's a coach with NBA championship experience. He obviously knows a little bit about what he's doing. So on that inbound play, to close it out, there was a quick little down screen to where Kawhi and Reggie Jackson basically had to switch. Now you can say, well, he could have fought harder around it or they could have trapped Luka and left an open guy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was necessarily the best answer. It's not like the Clippers gave up a bad shot. Right. You know what I mean? It wasn't quite as it wasn't quite as far back as Damian Lillard's shot from last year, but it wasn't like a an open, you know, toe near the three-point line shot. He was, you know, about 3 to 5 feet behind the three-point line. Reggie Jackson was in his grill, you know, hand up and everything. It was just Luca's time to shine, man. Like I really just feel like that was Luca's, you know, jump into superstardom, if you will. If he if you hadn't considered him there already, now you can look at it and say, okay, this guy's a legit superstar. And I listened to several podcasts. I, m- one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to, Austin, is Ben Golliver mm-hmm. um, on the Open Floor podcast and. They literally spent the entire show just talking about how great Luka Doncic is. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's kind of the, the story of the day, of the week, you know, of the playoffs so far is is how incredible he's been really since the, the bubble restarted. He averaged almost a triple-double in the seeding games. I think he was barely under 10 assists. Yeah. Um, you know, over 30 points a game. And he's 21, 20, 20 years old. He's in his second year. And it's just, you know, I was – doing an article on him actually and if you go in and you look at all the seasons that are you know 28 and 8 for averages for a season he's one of like seven or eight guys and it's Harden, Jordan, him, LeBron, Oscar Robertson you know the elite elite company. He's in good company yeah. Yeah and you know to do that over and over again is almost impossible to expect from somebody that age and I think it kind of came back down to earth in game five. Um, yeah, but what you said about that final shot, sometimes good players just make good shots against good defense. And I think that we saw a decent amount of that in game five as well. Um, you know, 
Kawhi and Paul George both just shot the lights out, and mm-hmm. it's not like the the Mavericks weren't playing decent defense. They were on them. It's just you know sometimes when you're hot, you're hot, and obviously the uh, the Clippers are an extremely deep team. They've got a great bench, and it showed in Game Five how many different ways they can beat you. You know if they're not you know hitting tons of threes which they shot really well from three. But even if they're not, you know, Kawhi's got that mid-range game that's almost kind of a lost art in the NBA today a little bit. Sure. Um, They can take it to the rim. They can, you know, get to the foul line. They can obviously do it all. And they showed how scary of a team they can be when they are, you know, at full strength. Yeah, and in talking to that game five, the Clippers were 63% from the floor. How about this? Just a hair under 63 percent from deep on 35 attempts that's dallas dallas shot 32 percent on one more shot attempt so it's not like the mavericks weren't getting shots up they were getting them up there it's i it is almost impossible for an nba team in the playoffs to hit 63 percent from deep when your field goal percentage and your three-point percentage are the exact same and you're putting up over 30 attempts you just have it you just got it going on like i Mm -hmm. don't know what else you can say you you mentioned how how just automatic they were and the clippers too they also out rebounded the mavericks not or excuse me 49 to 31 in game five the clippers had 28 assists to dallas's 19 they actually had two more turnovers and four more fouls but they also had six more points in the paint than the mavericks and that was a a nice change of pace so to speak because Montrezl harrell came back and had his best game since you know, he's been able to resume play, albeit it's a short sample size, right? He came back and had 19 and 11. And to me, that was kind of like the, you know, Paul George's resurgence obviously was the major headline for the Clippers. But having Montrez Harrell off the bench giving you a double-double, almost 20 points, he's pretty much, to me, he's kind of the motor behind that team whenever he gets it going. Everybody kind of plays off of his energy and his, you know, his effort and now that he's got, seems like he's got it going on. The Clippers, you may start seeing more performances, kind of like this. I'm not expecting 60% from outside every right. night, but you're going to see more of that energy that the Clippers just haven't had basically since the season resumed. Right. I think you could definitely um, attribute that rebounding edge to you know a lot to do with Montrez Harrell, like you said. You know, with him and Lou Williams coming off the bench, they have you know as capable a second unit as maybe any team ever you know mm-hmm. they have almost a whole starting five they could put in off the bench that could compete with a lot of other team starters and i like what you said about him bringing some energy and edge to the team you know obviously a, a huge rebounding advantage like that um the the clippers came into that game you know prepared they were you know ready to uh ready to really get after it and um that's just kind of you know those hustle plays kind of just show that um you know, the Clippers just wanted it a lot more than it seemed like they did in game four. Mm-hmm. I, I will say, though, I am still impressed that this this was probably the first game, in my opinion, where the Clippers really outplayed Dallas. Um, Absolutely. To this point, it's been, it's been really back and forth. I think, you know, you could make a great case in two of those first three games that, you know, Dallas could easily won, especially game one. Yeah. Um, and you know, but they need Chris Stapps Porzingis to come back. They they can't do it with just Giannis or with just uh, Luca. Sorry, um, and 
you know, hopefully if he gets healthy in time, this, this series could go seven games. It's been exciting. I think for me, it's been the most exciting series. I don't want to say it's a surprise that, that they've won a couple games because I kind of thought they could. Um, yeah, they had the historic, one of the most historically efficient offenses in NBA history. So you're going to give up some, some points to this team. Right. But, uh, you know, it's been a really exciting matchup. I think it's, uh, you know, kind of one of the premier stars of today versus like the the premier guy of the future, if you ask me. And um, I would I agree. Think the NBA is definitely in good hands if we've got guys like Luca and Zion and, you know, Jason Tatum and those guys are going to be taking up the mantle here soon. So um, I'm pretty excited to see where this series goes. I do still think that uh, ultimately the Clippers are the better team. Yeah, they're just so yeah. deep, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me anymore if anything could happen now. You know, yeah, hundred percent. And I think that the Clippers now have the advantage to to run away with the series. No team has won consecutive games in this series so far. So I mean, if it if we're going to see more of the same of that, then the Clippers, you know, at worst should win it in seven. Uh, I think though that Doc Rivers, knowing that they only have one more game and they get to advance, I think that you're probably going to see. Um, a similar style of effort from this team, um, especially if Patrick Beverly can come back and because he gives you a little bit of edge and toughness and hustle and energy too. So I still think that him missing um, played a part in some of, in, in their losses. Uh, you know, uh, you can pick him apart and say he's not a good matchup for, you know, X player or Y player. It's still the playoffs and he's still one of your best players. And we see in the playoffs all the time guys who we don't expect to really do much be one of the better performance performers on any given night Austin and I think that missing him um, is still a little bit concerning defensively and even offensively because he's not a bad spot-up shooter either um, which is is a good thing to have when you have you know Paul George or Kawhi Leonard or Lou Williams driving and kicking and and having a guy who's a consistent defense and spot-up shooter um it's pretty important for a playoff run. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, I, I think I said it last week, obviously about the jazz. Um, you know, anytime you're missing a veteran point guard, it's going to hurt. It's going to make a difference. Um, obviously they didn't need him last night, but, uh, correct going forward, <laughs> they're definitely going to want him healthy. He is a, you know, former all NBA defender. You know, he's obviously his reputation precedes him as far as how good of a defender he is. Um, and he does, he brings a little bit more edge to the team. You know, he gets under guy's skin, he gets in your head and, you know, we've seen it, we've seen him do it before. And, um, I think he'll be a big piece when he does come back. Um, I'm not, I haven't heard much about, you know, his, his status or anything. I, I haven't really heard much about Porzingis either. I'm not sure if he's coming back either, but, uh, if both yeah, teams are pretty mom on those guys. Yeah. Yeah. If both teams get healthy, it'll be, you know, even more exciting than it's already been. Absolutely, and we can transition from there. We won't talk about more technicals and how chippy right. this series has been anymore. I just think that you can expect to see that, basically, as long as these two are playing each other, you're going to see more of the same of that. But we can transition to the Toronto Raptors finally um, putting away the Brooklyn basketball team in a clean sweep. They advance 4-0. Their final game was all the way back on the 23rd. And it was 150 to 122. Austin, what did you, what were, you, what do you take away from this matchup? Well, uh, Toronto's scary. Um, you know they can beat you in so many different ways. Six guys in double figures in that game, and three more had nine. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you made a really good point. The bench scored 100 points. 100 I've points never seen that. I don't know I've if that's ever happened. Close. I've never seen anything even close to that. That's unreal. Um, you know, they win the they win the battle in the paint. They win the battle beyond the three point line. They get to the foul line. They play great defense. Um, they've got obviously the best coach in the NBA this year. He won Coach of the Year. Um, Lowry getting hurt is gonna help. Is gonna hurt them. It's yeah. You know, that's a, a big thing moving forward. Um, I think this upcoming series between Toronto and uh, Boston might be the series I'm most excited about throughout the whole playoffs, other than maybe once we get to the finals. Um, I think these are the two teams that have been playing the best basketball since the restart, really. Yep. Um, I don't know if you if you agree on that or not, but I'm really, really excited about this upcoming series. I mean, I have a lot of eggs in this basket because, you know, Boston is is my favorite to win the Eastern Conference based off of, you know, matchups and things like that. I feel a little bit better about this matchup if I'm allowed to say that due to, you know, another player being injured in in Kawhi or excuse me, Kyle Lowry. Excuse me, Raptor fans if you're listening. Uh it I don't really have any like anything that I could say that anyone watching or listening hadn't already thought or said themselves about this game. You know, it's just the, the Brooklyn basketball team was up against a buzzsaw of a team. You know, the the Raptors played their bench for most of the game, and clearly 100 points from your bench should be enough to get you a victory, um, especially if you're a, a reigning NBA champion and a contending one this season. You know, the the big concerns that I have, though, are the the foul trouble that the Raptors tend to get in, the turnovers that they have, and the poor free throw shooting. Now, they were able to get away with this because they were playing against a poor Brooklyn basketball team. But when you're playing against the Celtics, you can't turn the ball over to the Celtics. You can't foul the Celtics. And you have to capitalize when the Celtics foul you. And the the Raptors haven't done a great job in those three areas. And it's not to take away anything that they've done against Brooklyn. But when I'm projecting them against like the elite talent, these are going to be areas that are probably going to be highlighted and, and, you know, NBA analysts are going to be very vocal on. Right. And, you know, speaking to the injuries um, of Hayward and Lowry, I think, believe it or not, I think both teams are actually pretty well built to withstand those injuries. I think Hayward is kind of a, you know, redundant player to Tatum and Brown and a little bit. And Lowry, obviously, he's their starting point guard. He's going to be a a little bit harder to replace. But Fred Van Vliet has been an an absolute revelation this playoffs. I mean, he's been good for a few years now, but he's really, really turned it on. Um, I'm really, you know, like you said, there's not a whole lot else to say about Brooklyn's um, performance. They gave a valiant effort. They did everything they could with what they had. Um, Obviously, I think, next year and beyond is, is what, you know, Brooklyn fans need to be excited about with KD coming back, Kyrie, you know, they'll get Dinwiddie, DeAndre Jordan, you know, it'll be a completely different looking team next year. Yeah. And they got to figure out what they're going to do with their coach. This is where I think Tyron Lue would be an excellent decision for them just because of the, the players that they have. The players can basically run the team, you know, right. like Lou can say, Hey, you know, we're going to have you guys match up against these guys. You know, these are some of the things we want to do on the defensive end. Offensively, you know, maybe look at these areas. But by and large, it's going to be, 
you know, Irving and Durant trying to run the show. I don't know if Levert's going to be there because he's more of like an on-ball dominant player. They don't really need more of that on this team, mm-hmm. so you could expect to see him traded in my eyes. But it's just it's hard to imagine that Brooklyn isn't obviously better next year. And as for Toronto, again, you know, it's just more of the same of what we've been seeing. You know, Powell had 29, Ibaka had 27, Siakam had 20. And these are the guys that, you know, they can put up these numbers against bad opponents. But when you're ramping up against a team like the Celtics, who have three right now, four if completely healthy, guys that can hang 20 up on you on any given night as well. You know, the size advantage didn't really seem to affect Boston in, in their matchup against Philly. We'll see how that compares to... You know, a guy like Siakam, I think, is going to be kind of the X factor in this matchup. Uh, you know, obviously, Van Vliet's been on fire. Uh, you could kind of do a little bit more to take away a little bit of what he does if you're Boston. But Siakam and Gasol are the guys that I would be definitely worried about if I'm the Celtics. Right. And on the other side, though, too, you know, we haven't really seen Kemba Walker at full strength until the end of that series you know he was still battling knee problems and you know he kind of has that bulky knee and he looked better in game four and and, absolutely he gets going you know 100 percent. that just adds another dimension to this team um i'm really excited i think it's going to be a a chess match between those Mm -hmm. two coaches you know we're going to see you know one guy make an adjustment and then the other guy make an adjustment back and forth the whole series i back and forth um you know, it does seem like a long time ago already, but uh, Boston did just dispatch of a an extremely talented uh, 76ers team with relative ease, and yep. um, so they've had they had a little bit more of a test, I think. You know, obviously without Ben Simmons, that makes a difference, but you know, I don't think anybody would put Philadelphia in the same classes as, as this injured Brooklyn team. So, you know, I think Boston's ready for them. I, too, picked Boston to go to the NBA Finals. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty high on them as well. I am worried that uh, Toronto's offense is just, you know, like a juggernaut right now. 126 points per game is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, obviously, Boston's defense is going is gonna to slow that down a bit. Can they slow it down enough to, you know, to win the series? Uh, that remains to be seen. I think they can. Um you know, it's it's just two really deep, really good teams that it's going to be exciting. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, and I think some some key factors to look at real quick, and then we'll transition to the next series. These are two of only three teams that perform clean sweeps in the entire NBA playoffs, the other being the Miami Heat. And then you you worry about Boston's defense, but I think that this speaks to just how well of a you know how great of a job Brad Stevens has done as an NBA head coach. They're top five in offense and defense. That's mm-hmm. the stuff that makes up an NBA champion. Not saying that the Celtics will win an NBA championship, but they're right in the mix. And they, especially coming out of the East, they're, they're a team that you have to be concerned about. But with that mm-hmm. being said, we'll transition to a series that looked like it was over. And we're seeing a little bit more life from the Denver Nuggets against the right. Utah Jazz. Austin, what did you think about the the two games that we had? You know, we had... Um, Utah winning a very close game, 127 to 129. And then Denver, just yesterday on the 25th, won 117 to 107. Um, well, no, I think it was another 
instance of kind of polar opposite games in game four, it looked like Denver couldn't stop anybody. You know, they couldn't, you know, stop to save their lives. Jokic looked completely uninterested on defense. Mm-hmm. Michael Porter Jr. can't guard, can't guard pick and rolls. Let's just put that out there. That's no. something he's going to need to work on in the off season for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, even despite all of that, they were really close right down to the wire. Obviously, we saw one of the best, you know, one-on-one matchups just about ever in the playoffs. Donovan Mitchell had 51 points on 55% shooting. Jamal Murray had 50 on 58% shooting. He hit nine threes. Yeah. Um, you know, Jokic had 29 points in that game, and they, they still lost. Uh, I'm not sure how they lost. Mike Conley, Clarkson both stepped up big time. Um, that game was just shootout which is kind of what you've gotten used to with denver um and then last night i had i was pretty you know surprised and i think denver has to be pretty happily surprised with just one little adjustment on those pick and rolls seemed to really help um it seemed like before Jokic was kind of waiting back to see the action from the pick and roll and kind of staying in the paint and just getting blown right by and in the second half at least of last night's game you know he was stepping up and putting a little bit more pressure on the ball handler on the pick and rolls. And it really helped. Um, honestly, the only times that they really got away from him was when the defender let the, let the ball handler go away from the pick. But uh, they kind of shut that down a lot towards the end of the game. Um, and what can you say about Jamal Murray? Jamal Murray's just been terrific. Both of the last. Two yes. A hundred percent. And I think going back to game four real quick, Austin, mm-hmm. What really hurt Denver's chances was that Jokic was only 3 of 10 from deep in game four, and that Monte Morris was 30% from the floor, 0 for 4 for downtown, and then Paul Millsap was 46% from the floor on 13 totals attempts, 2 of of 6 from outside as well. So you saw just shooting luck maybe. I don't know. You know, it very easily could have gone Denver's way in that game. And then they would have had a 3-2 lead, Vice being down 3-2. You know, obviously, I think this is a little bit of Mike Malone kind of coaching for his job. We talked a little bit about how underwhelming Denver has performed in the bubble and then coming into the playoffs inside the bubble. It's, I think that he was just coaching for his job. I think a lot of that had to do with that. You know, the players seem to like playing for Mike Malone, so maybe a little bit of urgency on their part not to have to worry about a new voice coming in due to lack of effort on their end. Jokic did pick it up on the defensive end. I'm very happy and happy to see that. Um, you know, your insight on the pick and roll was spot on. That's what I examined as well. You know, uh, Michael Porter Jr. contributed with 15 points and, and Grant had 13. You you mentioned that Denver's defense, and so did I, you know, picked it up on the defensive end. Both teams were 50% from the field, though, so it's not like they were – you know, shutting down anybody. It's just the fact mm-hmm. that they weren't as bad as they were before. It's just a marked right. improvement as opposed to a complete turnaround. And, you know, both teams, it's it's interesting when you look at how close this game five was. Both teams took 16 free throws, but Denver ended up being 12% better from the line. Mm-hmm. Um, Utah had one more assist, but 10 more points in the paint. You know, Denver had three more rebounds, six fewer turnovers, and two fewer fouls. So, all of these things, you know, when you look at a close game, you can say, hey, look at this one area. This is really what contributed to the win. It was a lot of give and take between both of these teams. It's just the fact that, one, 
Nikola Jokic in Game 5 went 21 points, 5 of 5 from deep in that opening quarter, but then kind of fizzled out and just put up okay numbers throughout the rest of the game. But that was enough for the Nuggets because in the second half, that's when Jamal Murray woke up and said, I'm going to be one of the best point guards in the bubble. Right, and I didn't I didn't really start watching until just about after halftime. I, I caught like the halftime show and then saw the whole second half. And if you had just watched the second half of that game, you would have thought Jamal Murray was going to go for another 50 or 60 point night. He was on fire. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and, you know, I did see what Jokic did. He hit a big three in the fourth quarter, too. Yep. Ended up with seven threes for the game. You know, anytime you can get a center that hits seven threes in a game, I, I have a feeling you're going to probably come out on top more often than not. Um, you know, it's hard to d- determine is this two teams that are just really clicking on offense or two teams that are really struggling on defense. Um, <laughs> because I think Denver Denver can kind of make any team look bad on defense from time to time when they're really, you know, hitting on all cylinders. And Utah, too. You know, it's a old-school play, and it seems like it's been the, the name of the game for the Utah Jazz my entire life. But the pick and roll, just they, they do it better than just about anybody in the league. They, they always have. They run it more than just about anybody, and it, it works. You know, you get that giant Gobert rolling to the rim, and he's hard to stop. And Just Donovan, a tremendous lob threat for mm-hmm. sure. And Donovan Mitchell's kind of perfected that pass with him. And, you know, any, any worries about those two not being able to play together because of that whole coronavirus thing, I think, are out the window for sure. Yeah, and just a couple of key points that I had that I wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, let the listener know in case they didn't catch the game and they only caught the score. Mm-hmm. It was a very close game throughout the entire matchup until the fourth quarter when we started seeing Jamal Murray do his thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Utah didn't get any favors from O'Neal in this game because it, the turnovers, right, where he fouled, he got upset that he fouled on the defensive end, came back to the offensive side, said it. A, a horrible, horrible, horrible moving screen, which cost him the ball. And then he complained about it like he was like, no, I was in legal position. But you watch. Mm-hmm. He just – it was a frustration play. You know, he, he was missing sure. down – yeah, he was missing down the stretch of the game. And I will say that I was very impressed to see all of the tricks that Murray put up in this game. But one thing that I'm worried about with him is when he's feeling himself, he has tunnel vision. There were a, a few times where he missed – some wide open players because yeah he missed some he at one point i saw several possessions where there were three defenders on him and he could convert and did but there were other possessions where he didn't and he were he was missing two just wide open guys predominantly Jokic out of that pick and roll so Mm -hmm. i kind of worry about that and hopefully that's something that mike malone says hey you know keep your head up and your eyes open, keep your peripherals on when you're attacking the basket because we're mm-hmm. having some great looks from some guys that can capitalize from deep, guys like you know MPJ and, and, and Nikola Jokic. And then just real quick, uh, Snyder, he's he's a tremendous coach. I still think that you know he's doing a great job in the series despite you know some some turnover problems from O'Neal late and you know just the nuggets we're, we're hitting, you know, mm-hmm. Snyder is still doing a bang up job. I still think that he's the best coach in this series. Hey, yeah. you know, I agree. I think, um, you know, after what we said about game one, where it just looked like unless Donovan Mitchell had the ball in his hands, their offense was stagnant. That seems like, you know, ages ago now. And yes. I think this, this series has been a microcosm of the NBA overall, the two teams that can just really fill it up, um, you know, and they do it, kind of in different ways but 
they do a lot of the same things too. Um, and what you said about that tunnel vision with Jamal Murray, I couldn't have said better myself. Um, he he and Donovan Mitchell both almost make this series feel like it's almost like a we're watching like a video game where these two guys are just going back and forth and mm-hmm. they're you know they're at the playground and they're gonna see you know you put up fifty I'm gonna put up fifty you know all right you did this now watch me do this and yeah anything can you get, can do I can do better right and that can get dangerous but um, it's also a lot of fun to watch it certainly is and I'm not knocking the performance that Murray had in the slightest I just think that if Denver is going to Win two more games in a row. Go going three and zero. I think is a tall ask for for this matchup, just because of how great Utah has been playing. I don't see Utah losing two more games in a row. But if if Denver is going to upset the Jazz, if if you can call it an upset because of the seeding dis- disparity, I think that Murray has to do a little bit more playmaking. Not that he hasn't been doing a, a fine job, but you know to put that type of performance together in order to win consecutive games three in a row against Utah right now I he's got to keep his head up and he can't get just so focused in on his scoring right you know it's not uh an Allen Iverson you know 2076ers type team where you need one guy to score 50 points every game for them to win he doesn't need to put try to put the whole team on his shoulders every night um you know he obviously he is on fire and you want to ride the hot hand but you know, he had eight assists last night, which is good, but yep. you know, he could have had thirteen or fourteen if he'd you know, if he'd kept his head up a little bit better, like you said. Um, you know, I think Millsap coming down the stretch of this series could make a difference for Denver if he gets going a little bit more. You know, it wasn't that long ago he was, you know, a, a big time scorer for this team. And he's kind of obviously he's gotten older. He's he's kind of fallen back as far as, you know, their pecking order. But he's somebody that I could see being an X factor. Um, I think this series could go to a seventh game, but I'm with you. I, I think it's going to be really, really hard for uh, for Denver to um, to win two more in a row. Uh, I think that's part of part of where not having home court advantage kind of hurts teams this year. You know, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to go into a game seven at home in your home court with you know your fans behind you putting pressure on the other team. You know, that does make a difference. Yeah, and and as well as Denver played, it wasn't like they blew the doors off of Utah. Right. You know, and they had basically everything going in their favor. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't see them having that same amount of luck and success coming into the next two games. Mm-hmm. But in a in a series that shouldn't need more luck or success um, is you know Milwaukee and Orlando right now. Milwaukee leads three to one. I believe that they're actually playing right now. I don't have an idea of what the score is, mm-hmm. but they did play two nights ago, and Milwaukee. You know, did more Milwaukee things. They beat the Orlando Magic 121 to 106. You know, the Bucks scored the same amount of points in consecutive games, which I thought was pretty neat, but allowed one fewer point than they did in Game Three. So, mm-hmm. you know, hats off to them for getting one point better on the defensive end. Aaron mm-hmm. Gordon is continuing to miss time for the Buck or for the Magic, excuse me. And Chris Middleton decided that he was going to be, you know, the second best player on the Milwaukee Bucks again. And I mm-hmm. think. I may be crazy. I think that he might be a Paul George fan up until last night because right. with Paul George forgetting who he was, no one was talking about Chris Middleton. I mean, albeit he didn't dub himself playoff Chris or anything like that. that. <laughs> but he uh, he put up 18 in the fourth quarter to give him 21 total. Looked like he was going to have a, another bad game, but he put it together in the fourth, and it really helped out the Bucks. Right, and I think they've got to be, you know, happy about that. That's got to be something that 
makes them, you know, a little more confident going forward. You know, they've been able, other than game one, they've been able to kind of dominate this series without Middleton even really being close to what he's been all year. And, you know, 18 fourth quarter points, obviously he woke up in that quarter at least. Let's hope he can keep going for their sake. Um, you know, Giannis had just another incredible game, 31, 15, and 8. And you know it's you know you're at another level when you see a stat line like that and you kind of just shrug it off. Like, oh Yeah, it's I'm, just like it's just Giannis. And <laughs> uh, you know, Vucevic is kind of doing the same thing in this series, though. He had another double double 30 point game. Um, he's it's been surprising to see how effective he's been against the team that, you know, had all year has been the best interior defensive team in basketball. Um, and he had so, seven assists that night too. Right. And so, you know, he's really shown all of the, the pieces of his game that, that he has and how good he really is. Um, you know, we talked about it earlier. Giannis won defensive player of the year. The Bucks look like the Bucks again. Um, mm-hmm. They have the fifth highest points per game so far in the playoffs, and they've actually uh, given up the fifth fewest. And so, you know, not as good as they were in the regular season, but that's also in a, you know, a four-game sample is not very big. Um, and that game does start in about 20 minutes. It starts at 4 o'clock my time. Oh, okay. So not yet, but if you're listening and you want to tune into a good game, check that out. You know, Giannis is – just won that award so i'm sure they'll have something about that on there um they still don't defend the three well at all they gave nope. up 18 threes in that game the last game which is a ton to especially to an orlando team that's not known as a three-point shooting team um, correct they weren't a great three-point shooting team and the team waiting for them in the next round miami heat is they've mm-hmm. got several guys that can shoot the three really well they've got they're deep they've got a lot of guys that can beat you a lot of different ways um so you know, not everything is is rosy in Milwaukee, but it they've got to be feeling good about Middleton coming back better than he has been, and you know somebody besides Giannis having good games. You're 100 percent right. And just real quick on on the game itself, before I touch on some concerns that I have for the Bucks, you know the Bucks had 22 more points in the paint, four fewer turnovers, four less fouls, which 19 overall, which has actually been pretty low for them, and then three more assists. So all of these areas that you know, equate to a winning formula the Bucks had. I will say, though, that they had 21 attempts from the free throw line and only shot 67%. Kind of more the same of what I'm worried about for the Raptors and how they've been doing um, in kind of these winning areas is what I like to refer to them as. Mm-hmm. The Bucks are kind of slacking, you know, and it's not like they're going to not get in foul trouble with how aggressive Giannis is, with how you know, aggressive, you know, Brooke Lopez can be at times around the basket. You know, DiVincendo likes to attack the basket a lot more lately, and which is good for the Bucks to have another guy. Bledsoe, you know, hopefully the Bucks are expecting him to put some pressure on that Miami defense because of his athleticism. Mm-hmm. To only, to continue to put up bad free throw numbers is not going to, is not going to help, right? Right. Um, Milwaukee um, could be resting by now if they would have not come into game one like they were sleepwalking right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it it just worries me though the free throw disparity because Miami is going to pressure the Bucks into committing fouls, which they have committed a lot of fouls against the Magic. Except the Heat will convert from that end of the floor. They will convert from the free throw line. You can expect Jimmy Butler to to get to the free throw line 
quite a bit in, in these upcoming games. Goran Dragic has been playing phenomenal as well. We'll talk more about the Heat in a little bit. But these are the areas, and you mentioned the 40% um, three-point percentage in this game from the Magic, who don't really have a lot of three-point shooters on this team. The Heat are going to get just as many, if not more, shots up and convert more often than not than at, at that area right. of the floor as well. Yeah, 100%. You know, they've got Duncan Robinson, none, Tyler Hero. Jimmy Butler's not a terrible three-point shooter himself. He's not, you know, knocked down, but he's he's been better in these playoffs. Jay Crowder, Jay Crowder has can been shoot. playing very well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what you said about DiVincenzo, I think that's that's the biggest thing for him is is he is kind of an attacking guard. That, and, you know, him and Connaughton both. Connaughton's more of a, a – kind of an energy guy I feel like he can give you you know 12 or 15 points he can shoot the three um but they've got a lot of those type of guys that they can kind of just pull into that second unit um you know they've been big these last couple games for uh Milwaukee and they're going to need more of that you know like I like Shaq always calls I like to say the others um Milwaukee has some of the best others in the league Mm -hmm. um but you know the Heat do too the Heat have a lot of a lot of good pieces. The Heat are really well coached. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see the difference in styles um, between what they've seen in Orlando versus what they're going to see now in Miami because Miami is a is an aggressive attacking team that does shoot a lot of threes. And that's kind of how you beat, I think. If you're going to beat Milwaukee, I think that's kind of how you do it. You, you, hit, you have to be able to hit a lot of open shots and you have to attack the rim and try to get Giannis in foul trouble. You know, and play great defense. Yeah, and obviously. And and that's something that, that Miami does well, too. They are a good defensive team. Um, and, you know, there's something to be said about Milwaukee being the only team that didn't sweep in the East. So they are, you know, not getting this rest time like the rest of, of the other three teams are. And so, you know, that could come back to bite them in this, you know, kind of condensed playoff schedule here in the later rounds. But um, – it's my opinion. If you're a professional athlete, you can't play a basketball game every other day. There's something wrong. Um, you know, yeah. for the most part, they should be able they they should be able to overcome that. Yeah, I mean, and, and most most teams are. You mm-hmm. know, most yeah, teams it hasn't are been an issue. Overcome. Yeah, um, and we can roll right into the next series that you know we said was going to be a close series coming into this, and then we thought it wasn't going to be after the first few games, and now it's looking like our first guess was our best guess, Austin. Right. Well, you know, I like I said, I did my uh, reverse psychology on the Thunder and got another <laughs> win for me. No, it was all my fault. You know, sorry, Houston. Um, yep. No, but uh, way to go, Austin. Right. Obviously, uh, this is a two-two series. This is the series you and I both kind of we differed on, and we both said was going to go, you know, a little bit deeper than the other ones. Um, Chris Paul, another twenty-six point game. Um, Shea Gilders Alexander had a big game. Uh, How about Truder off the bench had 30 points, you know, showing why he's my pick for sixth man of the year. Um, Hits big shots in that game. Um, I'm kind of worried that the old James Harden is starting to show up again. I know you don't, you're not a big fan of his. I'll let you take that part, but uh, I kind of do feel like we're starting to see, you know, him kind of turn back into the old Harden these last couple games where he's missing an awful lot of shots. Yeah. I mean, that's really not like a, a hard secret that Harden didn't have that that great of a game. Right. Uh, he, you know, he was he did have thirty two, fifteen, and eight, and four steals. 
so in, in, in game four. So I don't know that that's necessarily a terrible game. Right. But, that's another instance like with Giannis where it's like, you know, 32, 15 and eight. And we're talking about how he didn't play well. Right. Yeah. His efficiency wasn't as high as you would like to see, mm-hmm. uh, but it was still, it was a three point game. It wasn't like, right. you know, the Rockets got blown out. It took every right. bit of OKC being that clutch lineup that they have been all year long. I had a feeling though, when Schroeder hit that, you know, catch and release three that he got from Chris Paul to close the third quarter, that really kind of was like, okay, I don't think that Houston is going to win this game, even though they had an entire fourth quarter left. Mm-hmm. And Harden, for his part, did do everything that he was supposed to do. I, I'm worried that um, P.J. Tucker, the guy that I refer to as the most underpaid player in the entire NBA, um, he is grabbing his shoulder an awful lot when he's not mm-hmm. on the court, so I'm worried that something significant is going on with him. Right. And he uses his shoulders a lot for defense, boxing out, and obviously shooting three-pointers. So it's not like his game isn't predicated on him using his shoulders like some other players can kind of get away with. But, you know, he was only 40% from the floor, 3 of 8 from deep. Gordon was 3 of 8 from deep, and he had previously just been on fire, which was great for Houston. Um, House was only 4 of 10, which previously had been doing great for Houston. Harding was Harden was 6 of 15 from deep, so he wasn't necessarily as efficient from the three-point end. Um, but if you look at those three guys and look at how they had been performing prior to this game, one or two shots swing their way, they win this game. I mean, that's how close it was. Right, very true. And another guy that you know we I haven't heard talked about really much since game one, Robert Covington. He hasn't really mm-hmm. shown up much as well either. You know, in the last game, he did have 14 points. He did hit four threes. You know, and and that's the thing that kind of surprised me is other than Harden. Everybody on the team shot pretty well. They they hit a lot of threes. They they made a lot of shots. They had three guys over twenty points, and usually that that can be you know a, a pretty good recipe for success. Um, so it was interesting to see Oklahoma City able to withstand that. Um, obviously, Russell Westbrook makes this a completely different series. That's obviously, the key to me. Obviously, that Houston is a completely different team with him out there. You know, it gives you another, I think, top 10 scorer in the NBA out there with Harden. You know, you know, Harden took more threes than anybody in the NBA. Well, Russell Westbrook took more twos. So he's kind of the yin to, to Harden's yang. And I think they're really missing that a lot. If he gets back, I know we just keep saying that. If he gets back, Houston, I think, has got to be the favorite to win. But Oklahoma City could pull the upset without him. I mean, it's very possible. And just more analysis from this game. OKC had more points in the paint. 46 to 34 compared to Houston, which, you know, had typically been for the most part in these games, a little bit more closer of a, of a matchup, um, nine fewer assists, six more rebounds and five less attempts from the floor. So just showing, speaking to the efficiency that OKC had, they only shot 78% from the line on 28 attempts, but Houston only had 10 attempts the entire game with nine to 10. And how about just, Billy Donovan stumbling just so happened to stumble upon late in game three that lineup that consisted of CP3, SGA, Schroeder, and then putting in Lou Dort and Gallinari at their five. I mean, they are small balling the small ballest team in the NBA, and they are not losing any bit of their of their clutch factor, their clutch gene. You know, they 
you know, Lou Dort is showing that he's somewhat of a James Harden stopper. He's making life hard on him. You know, I was listening to some podcasts that I'm pretty sure it was from The Ringer that um, I think it was Kelly Eco, if I'm not mistaken, did a did a nice piece on how, you know, Lou Dort had shut down James Harden in the regular season in previous matchups. And Harden, he makes life extremely difficult on James Harden, and you need those type of players if you're going to beat this Houston Rockets team. Right. He's almost like uh, the new-look Andre Roberson what, of what he was a couple of years ago, just, mm-hmm. you know, a tenacious defender he's you know gets up in the best you know the best perimeter player the whole game he has played really really good against james harden um he's actually an undrafted they both went to the same college they both went to arizona state um so you know you got the connection there um i saw something cool on on twitter somebody uh apparently oklahoma city thunder fans like uh these vanity license plates i guess is a thing that they have and um they're talking about making one for Lou Dort that just is his last name. And instead of like the state, it says in your Jersey. And I like that. I thought that was pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, he's just, he's a phenomenal defender, man. And um, I was listening to the mismatch with uh, Kevin O'Connor and Chris Vernon. And it's crazy to me, like how wide ranging the expectations of a Lou Dort was coming out of Arizona state. mm -hmm. Obviously I was, I wasn't evaluating draft class. Um, I would like to think that I would have caught on to Lou Dort's, but you know, I have the benefit of hindsight, obviously, but Kevin O'Connor, to his credit, said that he had him graded out as the 31, uh, you know, the 31st best prospect out of that draft class, largely because of the defense. The offense was the concern, and with a minimized role in OKC, basically just being a spot-up shooter in the corner, he's carved out a nice little niche for himself in that offense as well. Right. Well, they can, you know, they can get enough offense from CP3 and SGA and from uh, Schroeder. Schroeder, sorry. And no, you're right. Steven Adams, you know, he only had 12 points. Gallinari. Gallinari. You know, Gallinari's got to be one of the most underrated players in the NBA. You know, yeah. he's been he's been putting up a lot of points for a lot of years. Um, he's been good on, on just about every team he's been on. Um, I almost, you know, until last, until last night, I was almost saying that, you know, the Clippers might have been smart to keep him, but uh, Paul George kind of showed up again finally. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Obviously, I don't think they get Kawhi without Paul George, but that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, I'm excited about the rest of this series. I just keep saying excited, but it, all these all these series are really have been really fun to watch. Um, these two teams, you know, they match up really well. I don't think you're going to see a blowout one way or the other in, in any of the rest of the games. Um, Harden's the or I mean uh, Westbrook is the X factor, and yep. that at ten point or that ten attempts from the free throw line, that's kind of what's making me worried. Is is Harden, you know, already starting to to wear down? Is it is it going back to more of the same where, you know, he just can't finish out the season because they put so much on him all year long, or or are they relying too much on threes? And you know, all those are questions that we've had about this team for years. You know, regardless of who they've had around him. Yeah, and you're right, and I'm glad you brought up that point because people are starting to already come at James Harden with the criticism that I myself have largely heaped on him over the past several years. But I will say in Harden's defense, if I am playing a devil's advocate, so to speak here, he's the only guy on this team that can create offense. Literally it. Like Eric Gordon has had a couple decent games. Austin Rivers has had a couple decent games. You know, having Jeff Green being able to bring the ball up the floor has allowed Harden a little bit of rest on that offensive end. But Harden is the only one that can create He's the only one taking a beating when he gets to the, 
you know, when he's on that offensive end, everybody else is basically standing outside the line waiting for him to kick a pass out to him. Mm-hmm. So it's really tough. And those 10 free throw attempts that you spoke of with Westbrook on this team, that number probably doubles in this game just because of how aggressive Russ is. Right. And just the ability for Harden to pass the ball off to him every so often and say, here, you you go to the rim this time. You take a turn. You know, let me spot up a little bit. Having mm-hmm. that second, you know, just like Chris Paul was, having that second ball handler can initiate the whole offense um, makes it 10 times easier for him. And I think that's what obviously what they were thinking bringing in Westbrook this year. And, you know, it's got to be frustrating not having him out there. Um, but uh, if, he, if and when he does come back, it, it makes Houston a completely different team. Yeah, because OKC can't just put Lou Dortz on the best player of the Rockets. You know, they got two dynamic right. guards that they have to, you know, defensively game plan around. Right. But we can um, we can go ahead and transition to our next series, which, um, you know, unfortunately for your little hometown area that you're in, Austin, uh, did not end favorably at all. Um, Miami advances, you know, completing another clean sweep. This was probably the biggest, you know, loss at the that the Pacers took at the hands of the Heat in this matchup. It was a double-digit game, 99-87. to um, Gordon Dragic had 23 points. Four others were in double figures. Crowder was in double figures for yet another game, making it three, if not four, consecutive games where he was in double figures. Bam had 14, 19 assist, excuse me, 14 points, 19 rebounds, six assists, and a steal and a block in this game, while T.J. Warren only had 21 Turner had um, 22 and 14, which was a nice uh, game from him. And then Oladipo had 25, 8, and 5 for this game for the Indiana Pacers. Yeah, and it's just another just kind of a hard game to really wrap my head around why the Pacers just can't beat Miami. I mean, I think they kind of, towards the end of that game, I think it was kind of the writing was on the wall. And, you know, as you see, they only scored 87 points. Um, mm-hmm. I think they kind of, I don't want to say rolled over at the end of the game, but it, they definitely knew the outcome. Um, you know, you've got to be pleasantly surprised about Oladipo having a big game finally, kind of looking a little bit more healthy as the series went on. Um, if you want my personal opinion, I think he's on his way out of Indiana before too long, either when his contract's up or he may try to pull Paul George and um, force his way out before that contract is over. Mm -hmm. Um, At least that's a lot of what you're hearing around here. Uh, The Nate McMillan firing too. We talked about that already. You know, there's a lot of fallout from this series. Um, Going back to the game, game four though, to actually specifically kind of break that down. um, The only real big difference between the two teams was rebounding. Uh, The Patriots got absolutely crushed on the boards and, you know, with Miles Turner in there, you would think he'd be able to to rebound a little bit better than he does. I think that's one of the big things that fans around here really, really are down on him about is he's not a great rebounder. But they missed Sabonis there too, um, who was a great rebounder, a terrific rebounder. And yeah. you know, like I said earlier, what what more could you have expected from a team that you know two of their five best players were out the entire playoffs? You know, Oladipo hardly played all year and wasn't the player that he was, you know, two years ago before the injury. Brogdon was coming into the bubble off of an injury. Right. And they haven't been healthy. McMillan teams have kind of notoriously been injured a lot. Um, And Miami's just 
a, a solid, deep, well-coached team. They've got Tyler Heroes hitting on all cylinders now. Duncan Robinson's been, you know, a pleasant surprise for this team for a couple of years now. Yes. You know, one of the best shooters in the NBA. And and it's not like the, the Pacers' best players played bad. That All three, Warren, Turner, and Oladipo, had big games. Um, it's just Miami just wants it more, I think, in these games. They're just, they're just the talent level is just – a little bit higher for Miami than it is for the Pacers. You know, Goran Dragic has kind of been the X factor for this team. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't see this twenty, almost averaging about twenty points per game. I didn't see that happening. Um, but you know, he has been a solid NBA point guard for a long time, and I think that's that's one area where the Pacers were lacking versus Miami. Is is Brogdon is a good guard, but he is he a point guard? Is he a traditional point guard? I don't know, and. Indiana doesn't really have a, you know, a traditional lead point guard, and that's something they could look at in the off season. Um, we were talking about the coaching search. It has come out now that should he become available, uh, Mike D'Antoni is going to be their their first guy that they hmm. they want to go after. So that's interesting. Yeah, considering the roster that they have, it's more of like a defensive, like hard grinding team. I don't. I mean, to me, that would kind of fit more of what we saw from D'Antoni in LA and New York when mm-hmm. he did not have like a dynamic lead ball handler. Um, right. And it was more of like a traditional, like well-rounded offense. He didn't really do that hot. He kind of has to have those um, dynamic, you know, ball handling centric lineups. And, you know, maybe Oladipo, if he's healthy, can turn into that lead guard. Um, I don't so- imagine Brogdon being that, that type of a guard. Uh, I like Aaron holiday a lot. You know, if he gets better and continues to develop, he could potentially turn into that role. Mm -hmm. But yeah, coming back to this game though, it was Miami made 11 more shots on 11 more attempts, but they only went eight from 30 from deep and still put up a 12 point victory. Right. Um, Miami had 20 more points in the paint. They had four less fouls, two fewer turnovers and four more assists. So those winning stats that I like to kind of keep track of, you know, Miami led the way in those, which, you know, led them to victory, so to speak. Um, Miami really didn't have their best game, still won that. You know, Indy is just outmatched. You know, I don't think that they should have any shame in losing to a team that could beat uh, the title contender in Milwaukee. You know, it's right. just there's a reason why the Pacers were seated where they were. You know, fifth overall is not a was not bad considering that their roster was pretty newly constructed, you know, and you know, bringing in significant changes with guys like TJ Warren, guys like Malcolm Brogdon and Jeremy Lamb, you know, that's not a small ask for any NBA head coach to say, all right, here's three new pieces, get us to the fifth seed in the East, you know? So right. I, I thought that McMillan did a fine job. I'm not a big fan of D'Antoni coming there. I think that D'Antoni would be great in a place like New Orleans, but um, with, with how dynamic that offense could be, but, you know, I'm kind of more along the lines of what I mentioned earlier. I think Sam Cassell would be a great, um, coach in, on that team or even a Jacques Vaughn. But ultimately, it's just, I'm really just disappointed that McMillan is now out of a job again after just being a consistent, you know, good NBA head coach. Um, I know that he's not a, a, a title winner or anything like that. He's just, he's a solid coach, man. Right. And, you know, being from here and being around, you know, the team a little bit and the fans, um, you know, I think to someone that's not, around it as much they see what he did with the Pacers and and the Pacers on paper aren't that impressive of a team and 
you know, I think coming into it, anyone around the Pacers kind of knew that this team was going to be in contention a lot. They're they're extremely well coached. They're play they play extremely hard. They have a lot of good NBA players. They just don't have that top tier star level talent. And you know, I don't remember who it was I was listening to, but they said the Pacers every year are good enough to win 45, 50 games, but they're not really built to to beat anybody in the playoffs. They don't have that superstar kind of level guy. Oladipo was becoming that guy. But, you know, you can say what you want about Nate McMillan, but Oladipo was a pretty unknown commodity when he went there. And Sabonis was pretty well unknown. Wasn't, you know, yeah, he's, at the level that he's at now. Not and, how he was in OKC at all. Right. And so I think something has to be said that Nate McMillan at least did a good job of developing those guys and, you know, made the best out of what he had. I, I was one of the people when they traded Paul George for those two that kind of laughed at it and said, oh, you know, here we go again, Pacers management, you know, losing another trade. Yeah. And I don't think that's the case at all at this point. Um, but, you know, a lot of things, another thing I hear about the Pacers is the ownership doesn't want to spend money. But what you just said, they went out and got Jeremy Lamb, Malcolm Brogdon, and TJ Warren in the offseason. They, they made upgrades to this roster and – just the fact that they want to go after a guy like D'Antoni shows you that, you know, maybe the fans are a little bit out of touch in the aspect that, you know, I think this ownership group really does want to win. I think they are are all in on doing what they can to build a winning team here. You know, basketball is really important to the state of Indiana. Um, and I just think it – I don't think it was the right move to get rid of McMillan. I'm with you. I think he, you know, did the best with what he what he had. Uh, the only thing I can see about Dan Tony that intrigues me is what you said about Oladipo being, you know, a poor man's James Harden. If he could, you know, fill that role, if he can come back healthy, you know, he is a good attacking guard. He can get to the rim. He can get to the free throw line. You know, he showed a couple years ago he is all star caliber when he's when he's right. Um, but you know. Not to talk all about the Pacers for this whole thing. Miami is moving <laughs> yeah. on, you know. Yes. Not a whole lot else really to be said about them. They're just, you know, uh, their coach, I can't think of his name, all of a sudden, Spolstra. Spolstra, yeah, they're, Spolstra is, they're always uh, a really well-coached team. They, they're they always kind of, you know, prepared for whatever you throw at them. You know, Bam Adebayo is just, you know, other than Giannis, he's kind of like a really unique, you know, physical type. He he doesn't have a whole lot of other comparisons that I can think of in the NBA of somebody that's quite as big and athletic as him that that does have as much touch and playmaking ability as he has. It's like if Giannis and Nikola Jokic had a baby. Right? Yeah, it <laughs> right? Is for sure. That's a good way to put it. Um, I think they match up really well with uh, – with whoever they play in the next round, it could still be Orlando. I doubt it, but uh, they match up really well with the Bucks. Um, you know, like I said, Dragic I think is going to be the X factor in that series because I, I don't think coming into it anybody thought he was going to be, you know, a twenty point a game scorer. Yeah, and plus, you know, just the the number of defenders that that the Heat can put on the best players in Milwaukee, um, they can put out a lineup that doesn't consist of a point guard at all, mm -hmm. as well. You know, so it's. I don't know. It's I'm very intrigued by that matchup. I will say though, back to your Oladipo keeping him happy point. Um, you know, basically the NBA said that he had to play in Orlando. He was giving up three million dollars. That wasn't the team saying that. That was the league. So you know, there are some right. speculation that he's upset at the team that that happened. 
Um, it was out of their hands. It was the league saying that because he's basically mm-hmm. waited until past the deadline to say whether or not he wanted to play to make up his mind. You can make the argument that he wasn't given enough time to make an informed or educated decision. Mm-hmm. It's not the point. You know, he still had to do it. And, you know, maybe he just would feel a change of scenery. I think that D'Antoni, you know, hiring him would be the idea that um, Oladipo is that ball handler and, and dynamic guy. And maybe that is a move to keep him happy. I just think that if that happens, either Turner or Sabonis are gone. Like, that's just too big of a lineup for a D'Antoni system to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I agree with, with all of that. I think it would be interesting to see. Um, you know, another thing they talk about, too, with, with Oladipo is how he did his whole rehab away from the team in Miami. And well, that's where he lives. And, you know, the coronavirus kind of changed things. It's not like he could be, you know, at the at the facility with the medical staff rehabbing during at least during the the shutdown. Before mm-hmm. that, you know, he, he could have been around more. But, you know, I'd want to be home, too, if I was rehab. And to be honest, the, the idea he's gone for Miami already because he you know he's friends with those guys or, or whatever he's too friendly before the game I hear that talked about on the radio here all the time too mm-hmm. and I mean if you had the choice to live in Miami in the offseason or Indianapolis and you said in, you're saying Indianapolis I'm going to call you a liar 10 times out of 10 <laughs> Indianapolis yeah. isn't that bad of a place but it's not Miami and uh, I just think people read too much into stuff sometimes yeah, and I mean, he went to school in, in Indiana, too. So, I mean, it's not like he doesn't have zero ties to that area at all. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and we can finish up to our last series to evaluate. Um, if you want to call it a series, maybe that's being polite, but the Los Angeles <laughs> Lakers versus the Portland Trailblazers. The Trailblazers did overcome the Lakers in game one, and ever since then, the Lakers have been mad. And on Mamba Day, mm-hmm. they had a field day with the Portland Trailblazers, Austin. Yes, they did. Uh, you know, obviously, like you said, Mamba Day, it was a pretty crazy thing at the beginning of the game. They started on a 24 to 8 run. And, you know, right. anybody that's an NBA fan knows those are, those are Kobe's two numbers. That's why 824 was Mamba Day. Um, you know, you made a good point on Twitter that, uh, you know, that's typically at the point where you would restart the game. Um, <laughs> yes. I like that because I'm the exact same way. You know, it's like, all right, this is. Let's not going the way I won. Let's try again. Exactly. Rage quit, I think, as they call that. <laughs> I'm never mad when I do it. but Right. No, but uh, um, obviously the Blazers are just – I think they're running out of gas. They're a great team. Lillard's a great player. He got hurt in that game. He's you know he got a sprained knee. Um, I think that's the nail in the coffin. Uh, KCP finally showed up. Da- uh, Danny Green finally showed up. You know, quieted all the, all the critics. Until mm-hmm. the next game, they miss a couple shots. Lakers fans are ruthless, trust me. Yeah, uh, and, and LeBron fans. But, yeah, yeah, and LeBron fans, yep. Um, you know, they outscored them in the paint. They blocked seven more shots than the Blazers in game four. Um, it's funny you hear about, you know, from some people, how many more foul calls the Lakers got than the Blazers. The, the Lakers actually committed one more foul than the Blazers did in that game. Um and, and the free throw attempts were very close to the Blazers exactly. actually had one more free throw attempt than the Lakers the whole game. Right. Right. But, you know, of course, any team with LeBron, all you ever hear about is how he gets all the calls, yes. um, which sometimes he does, you know, but some lots of superstars do. You know, he had another big game, 30, 10, and 6. Um, 
it was just you know kind of an all-around beatdown. Um, like I said, you know, Mamba Day, you know, twenty-four to eight run. It just seemed like they were destined to win. I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't think that. Uh, I didn't think they'd let Kobe down on that day for sure. No, not at all. And if you look at the rest of the stats, right, like the Blazers actually had eight players that were in double figures, but only one of them had twenty points, and that was actually Nurkic. And it's a good thing for the Blazers that he showed up at all in the slightest in the opening quarter because he was the only one doing anything for that mm-hmm. team early. Um, you know, the uh, the Blazers actually had one more rebound than the Lakers in this game. The, the Lakers had four more points in the paint. You mentioned the seven more blocks and nine nine more assists. The Blazers had one more free throw attempt than the Lakers and shot 74, 74%, excuse me. And the, the Lakers shot 67% in game four. So I don't know what it is about these heavily favored teams to win in, in the NBA championship. They can't hit free throws. Like, that's a recurring theme between the the Raptors you know the the Bucks and now and now the Lakers you know a lot of these heavily favored teams for whatever reason they get in foul trouble and they don't capitalize when they get fouled as much as they should um you know right. the Lakers- that's oh, that is a weird uh a weird kind of coincidence that's a good point to make the the Lakers just aren't really that great of a, a shooting team altogether but those other two teams that you mentioned are and it just it doesn't really make sense you're right yeah, and just the Lakers shot 56% from the floor, right, when the Blazers were actually a hair under 45, and the Blazers had two more field goal attempts. So that just goes to show you that the Lakers were efficient. They were humming and clicking. You know, you mentioned the KCP and, and Danny Green naysayers are pretty quiet right now. They're probably like, oh, you know, that's what they get paid to do or da-da-da, which, I mean, you're right, sure, but mm-hmm. – I they can't go from being the worst player in the NBA on game one. And now all of a sudden you're just like not giving them any credit at all for doing well. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And that's just typical Lakers fans. It's just like, you know, Yankees fans, Cowboys fans, they're, they're a little bit spoiled on winning and they expect everybody to be, you know, a superstar every game. And it's just not the case, but you know, a couple of points that you made in your notes that were, are really impressive. Um, Lakers only had two players that took 10 shot attempts or more, um, mm-hmm. LeBron, and LeBron was 10 of 12. They didn't have a single player play over 30 minutes. Um, you know, they're going to be well-rested going into the next round. They're they're ready. You know, LeBron's playing at, at LeBron playoff level, and that's always, you know, more often than not going to be enough to get you a win on most nights, at least, you know, until deep in the playoffs. They still worry me, you know, whether or not they can hit enough shots in later rounds. Um, Houston played them really tough in the uh, in the bubble, and so did Oklahoma City. Both, you know, beat them pretty handily. And um, the Clippers be- game was pretty close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it remains to be seen who they play in the next round, or you know, how many more games this will go. I think, I think the Lakers have to be in the mindset. Let's finish them off tonight. You know, without Lillard, it's going to be hard for Portland to put up much of a fight. They just should have counted last night or the the eight twenty four game as two games just because right. yeah. I mean not only is Lillard injured but you know people forget that as good as McCollum has been he's playing with a a broken back right. <laughs> that's pretty Insane. pretty impressive you know what I mean uh, Zach yeah. Collins is out uh, Carmelo Anthony is looking pretty gassed now right. um, Gary Trent Jr is just not the right player to be matched up against a LeBron James. Uh, right. And it's 
and it's also crazy too that Terry Stotts is a great coach, but I did not understand why they started Whiteside and Nurkic together and left Gary Trent Jr. on the bench because there, I understand that there's a philosophy that you need to have scoring coming in off the bench and Jr. can do that, but you're also <laughs> you're also down two to one against a, a team that's largely considered to be an NBA favor, championship favorite this year. You need to have your best guys in as much as you can. Right, and the only thing I could think of there is is just, you know, that they they felt they needed a rebounding advantage or that they were getting out-rebounded maybe, that, that just the Lakers have so much size. But the Lakers have size in a non-traditional kind of way. Like LeBron's a guard, and he's, you know, now in this point in his career, he's basically a guard. Anthony Davis can step away from the, from the rim, and their big men are – not going to post up a lot. It's, it's, uh, you know, kind of a, they're rim runners. They're, you know, Dwight Howard at this point, in his career is kind of an energy guy. And, you know, JaVale McGee is kind of just that, that lob threat. And mm-hmm. so they don't really, it doesn't really make sense to have Nurkic and Whiteside out there because they, they can't guard those big guys anyway, really. Yeah. And it slows down your team against probably one of the more athletic front courts in the entire NBA not a good look. And, at, and Terry Stotts is a fine coach. I'm not saying that he's a, a terrible one, but you know, he he knew what the correct lineup was because whenever they he finally had enough and called a timeout, they put in Gary Trent Jr. and took mm-hmm. out Hassan Whiteside. So to me that's like, okay, you knew what the right answer was from the very beginning of the game and just for whatever reason second guessed yourself or, you know, went against your your better judgment for mm-hmm. whatever reason. Right. And one other thing too, you know, when if when Kyle Kuzma gets, you know, more than about 13 points in a game, it's pretty hard to beat the Lakers. And, you know, that just brings another dimension to that team, to the, to the lineup in general. Waiters finally got a little bit more run. Uh, didn't do a whole lot with it. Played 14 minutes. Um, Alex Caruso, you know, I, I know plus minus is not a huge thing, but he was plus 15 again. And, you know, I think he's had a pretty high plus minus every, every game this series, even the one they lost. Um, Anthony Davis only played 18 minutes. JaVale McGee only got 14 minutes. You know, we even saw Jared Dudley sighting. He had three steals, believe it or not. Um, didn't have a, didn't record a single other, uh, statistic, but, uh, didn't take a shot, but he did have three steals somehow. Uh, so it was nice to see Dudley get out there a little bit. Um, you know, this was just kind of a weird game. Portland just didn't really show up at all. The Lakers didn't. No one guy on their team really like blew every blew anybody away. Obviously, LeBron hardly missed a shot, but it was just insane how efficient as a team they were. Just going through the box score now, it's I mean you know five for eight, ten for twelve, four for six, five for eight, five for eight. That's the starting five. Like that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, my buddy Patrick just commented and said that Milwaukee is not coming out of the locker room. I don't know what that's about because oh. their game was supposed to start about 15 minutes ago and it doesn't look like it's underway at all i have no data on that patrick we've been doing this podcast now for about an hour and a half so i'm not sure as to why i'm sure more information will come out and you know if it's anything that we feel significant we'll be covering in our next episode which we'll be recording on sunday evening but with that being said austin i feel like that's a great place for us to wrap up our show for the day i feel we did a great job um protests huh okay so 
Orlando yeah, was on I the did, court. I did just read a, a tweet from Woj that said there's talk of a boycott, and that's why they're not coming out of the locker room. And um, the NBA officials are in there now talking to them. So we'll we'll definitely have some a big story for you guys for our next episode for sure. Yeah, so if this is in conjunction with what we saw with uh, Mr. Blake out of what happened with him in, in Milwaukee, um, obviously that happened in the same area of where the Bucks play. And uh, mm-hmm. we know that several Bucks players, including George Hill, was very vocal about the displeasure that they're even in the bubble right now and it's taking kind of pressure and spotlight off of injustice and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, totally understand where they're coming from. I believe that, you know, there does need to be reform in a lot of areas in our nation right now. Um, mm-hmm. And not to tie this into any sort of strategy at all, it may be in poor taste, but I mean, Milwaukee certainly does, you know, if they, if they do protest and boycott this game and it counts as a no contest or disqualification, they would still have the advantage over um, Orlando. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that that's why they're doing it at all. It's just a, right. another side note to, to consider mm-hmm. and how this could affect the overall landscape of the NBA playoffs. Um, you know, if, if this is something that the team got together, I would like to think that the ownership and the coaching were involved as well. And, you know, if it's an act of solidarity, I think that that's great. I mean, you, a lot of NBA players wanted to make sure that, you know, voice, their voice of activism and, and protests against injustice and things like that were heard while they were in Orlando the NBA put it on page one that they're down to do whatever they can to support the players um, with protesting social injustice. And to the NBA's credit, they have as far as advertisements and displays mm-hmm. and things like that. But, you know, maybe players aren't feeling like it's enough and maybe we're going to have another round of, you know, collective bargaining, things like that. I hope not. I hope that, you know, the players that aren't in Orlando can talk with the players that are in Orlando and, and act in solidarity to um, come to some sort of resolution and how they can, you know, handle this case moving forward. Austin. Right. And, you know, just from a, a fan standpoint of, of the NBA, you know, you, you would hate to see it if it does affect games and does cause missed games, but some things are bigger than basketball for sure. hundred um, percent. And, you know, you and I have talked several times on this show about, you know, NBA players and athletes in general, having a pretty unique perspective on life and needing to have their voice heard just like any other any other citizen so you know i don't we can't go back on that now just because we're missing out on a game and um you know whatever happens going forward this with this happens um i hope it doesn't you know derail too much of the playoffs uh because it has been a great playoffs up to this point but um you know i i don't really have anything else to add from what you said you you put it pretty well i appreciate that and yeah this does seem like it's going to be significant enough to where we will cover whatever details come out of this come sunday afternoon mm-hmm. or evening whenever we do our regularly scheduled show but you know as for us here at breaking the game um podcast we you know we represent the off the ball network um as far as my end i know that austin is doing great things with the game change sports network um, both of us have recently published articles um, i encourage you guys to go and check those out you know austin is doing great work um, with the, the game change uh, sports network and uh austin just real quick if you want to promote yourself yeah, um, so I just did an article, like you called him Luka Legend. I actually did an article called The Legend of Luka Doncic, and um, you can go read that on GameChangerSportsNetwork.com now. Um, a lot of great writers over there, a lot of great content. Um, 
we're working on more social media content. Um, we do some kind of polls every every other day or so. Uh, all kinds of good stuff going up there all the time. Um, it's a pretty big group of guys, so they're they're all doing really great work. Um, they have if you go on their Facebook, they have a list of live shows. They have actually a schedule of when their live shows are each night of the week. You can check those out. Um, I'll probably be working on an article, something to do with this uh, this ongoing story with uh, these uh, the Bucks not coming out of the locker room. We'll see. That's probably you know a little bit of a touchy subject at this point. So we'll see. But uh, you know you're doing a lot of great work too. So go ahead and you know give yourself a pat on the back too, Stephen. Well, I appreciate that. And real quick, before I pat myself, I just want to say that um, my guys at the Off the Ball Network have a running uh, group chat. And details that I'm getting out from what we're not watching right now, obviously, Austin, are that they took the ball rack and the name tags down from the players. So it looks like this game is going to be um, not happening um, as far as you know whether or not it's postponed or if it counts as a disqualification or a forfeit. Um, we don't have the details of that yet. But we will be, um, you know, obviously it'll be something that we cover. We're probably going to, um, it looks like my guys that off the ball are doing a live video sometime this evening. I don't know if I'm going to be a part of that or not. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll be posted on that. But, you know, as far as what I'm doing with the off the ball network, I, I put up a, a piece about the coaching carousel and where I felt, you know, um, coaches would fit in well as far as, you know, vacancies that we know about, vacancies that are speculated. And then the long shot, you know, chance that if Greg Bobovich leaves the San Antonio Spurs for the Brooklyn Nets, um, I feel like Becky Hammond would do a good job there. And, uh, you know, I put my reasons why in there. Um, probably going to have to do some updating with uh, Indiana deciding to have a change of heart with Nate McMillan. But, yeah, just go check us out at our respective, you know, websites, the offtheballnetwork.com. And, Austin, just real quick, the URL for where you. Gamechangersportsnetwork.com. Excellent stuff. Yeah, and as for us, uh, you know, we've been the Breaking the Game podcast. You, the audience, you know, whether you're watching or listening now or later, we very much appreciate you guys uh, supporting us. Um, we went over a thousand downloads as a show um, a couple of days ago, which is a huge milestone. A lot of those coming over the last two months when we've really ramped up our interviews and activity. So, really appreciate the support from you guys. Um, it, it's made all the difference to myself and Austin. I'm sure that you echo those same sentiments. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, a thousand downloads is nothing to nothing to laugh at for sure. You know, I, I'd been at this for quite a while by myself and, and hadn't come close to that. So, you know, we're doing good things. We're doing good work. We appreciate everybody that takes time out of their day to listen to us. You know, there's a million NBA podcasts. There's a million sports shows you can listen to. So anybody that gives gives us some time of their day, you know, we appreciate it. Uh, we hope you guys learn something from us. We hope, you know, or, you know, you like what we have to say. If you don't like what we have to say, at least we hope we inform you and, you know, reach out to us at the, you know, at our Twitter or Instagram, you know, we have an email. We, we love to, you know, connect with you guys and, and, you know, just thanks for listening. Yeah, absolutely. And those handles you can reach us at on Twitter is at BTG NBA pod. And then at Instagram at BTG NBA pod. Appreciate the assist there, Austin. As always, you can email us with whatever you want to talk about here on the show. We will gladly invite the open dialogue between us and you, the, the audience. You can email us at breaking the game podcast at gmail.com. We've been the Breaking the Game podcast. You, the audience, have been awesome. We will catch up with you guys next time. Much love, everybody. Have a good one.